Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. In honor of Pride Month, the Startup Canada podcast network is celebrating the contributions and achievements of LGBT plus entrepreneurs. Join us as we chat with LGBT plus founders and support organizations who are challenging the status quo to build a more inclusive world. Today on the show, we're thrilled to have Connie Stacy. Connie is the founder and president of Edmonton-based Growing Greener Innovations. She holds a BA from the University of Alberta and brings 20 years of experience from the IT and computer programming sectors to her work at GGI. Connie founded the company in 2014 to create a better generator, silent, no fumes, no carbon emissions. Upon developing the patented Grengen solar battery generator, she expanded her design into the battery storage sector. Connie serves on the steering committee of the Center for Grid Innovation at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. She's received Global Woman of Vision and World Changing Women Awards, and she was named to this year's Top 50 Changemakers list by the Globe and Mail. Connie, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. Delighted to have you here. Before we get started, it's uh, it, 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 it's uh, the etiquette here is that we try and ensure assure that our, our entrepreneurial audience is going to learn a lot from every podcast. So we'll start off by asking what top pieces of advice that you hope entrepreneurs will take away from our conversation today. Blue and green, you'll never be seen. Uh, um, we're not talking <laughs> fashion. Oh, sorry. Okay. Yeah, I'm not the one to ask fashion advice for, so we'll skip that one. Um, you know, best advice uh, from an entrepreneur-specific uh, place would be, know that you have a customer for your product. So often entrepreneurs start out and they have a great idea, but they haven't really taken the time to know, is there somebody who's going to pay the price for that product or service, you know? And that one in particular, I find is where a lot of, a lot of companies end up failing is they, they underestimate the consumer's interest in buying the product. Uh, so that would probably be the the first really big one I can think of. The other is stick it out. <laughs> there are <laughs> there is just so many people who get so tired because it is an incredibly onerous process. It's long, it's hard, you will face a lot of challenges. So you just really have to stick it through. Right. Um, those are both great pieces of advice. Th th let me just explore that second one for a sec. Tell me about a time that you stuck it out when you know, normal people would have said, oh, the hell with this. Let's go get a job. <laughs> oh, now that's a long list. That's a long list. <laughs> um, you know, we had, um, and you know, this really leads into a lot of our topic today, but one of the things that was a real challenge for me was at the beginning, um, 
unconscious bias really played a tough role for me. Uh, and I say unconscious because I do believe that a lot of the people I were talking to uh, were by no means sexist or homophobic, um, but they had conceptions or, or preconceptions about what a battery manufacturer looked like. Um, <laughs> and guess what? Battery manufacturers don't usually look like a middle-aged gay woman. Who knew, right? I, mean, I thought there'd be I thought there'd be a lineup. Um, it turns out that whenever I go to a conference, I have the women's bathroom entirely to myself. It's a beautiful thing. It's like an echo. Um, so you know, for me, a lot of times, uh, it was kind of not one event, but there were so many times where I faced comments of, "I just don't see innovation here," or um, "I don't see a market for your product." Um, you know. Well, now, Missy, I think you should X, Y, Z, right? And there were so many little things like that where people just didn't see me manufacturing batteries. And I mean, women in deep tech is uncommon. Women in deep tech manufacturing is pretty much unheard of. And uh, one of the kind of comical things of this is, you know, and this wasn't by intent, but we've recently filled out more of our executive team and it's all women, so that was a little bit, a bit ironic, I feel like, that in the end we ended up with uh, an all-female team. And I presume that's because you were looking for the best people for yeah. the jobs. Yeah, I was. In fact, uh, you know, there was one person I had known from um, my career previously that I brought in, and that was our vice president of marketing communications. Uh, but both our uh, VP finance and our VP ops were recommendations from other groups. Uh, and VP ops in particular was a great steal. Um, she was the director of engineering for the city of Edmonton. And, um, you know, it, rumor had it through a friend that she might be looking. Uh, and when I met her, I knew, wow, she is totally my opposite. Perfect. <laughs> what do you mean by your opposite? Well, you know, I think one of the things with being an entrepreneur is you really do have to have a certain appetite for risk, I think is probably the best way to put it. You you can't, I can't imagine someone truly being successful in something, startup, in new technology, uh, any of this stuff where there is so much risk. There's so many unknown things. I mean, when I built our system, it's a patented technology. Well, guess what? It had never been built before. We didn't know if we could do it. Uh, so that's a lot of risk. And one of the things that's so amazing about Anjum, our um, uh, VP operations is she's so thorough, so grounded, so like dot the I's, cross the T's, you're going to get it done. Right. So um, she's the detailed, detail-oriented, yeah. reliable person that everyone can depend upon and, 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 and go to for help. Oh, absolutely. We'll be in meetings with- While uh, you're knocking the walls I, down. Yeah. And she's looking at me like, please don't speak. I'm going to have to fill this. I'm going to have to do whatever it is you say. So please, please don't say anything too extreme. I can see the look in her eyes and it's beautiful. <laughs> and you know what? I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I agree with you that every business with with, 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 with with any type of ambition has to have both types of people it's got to it's got to have the the, the, the chargers ahead the the, the, the the movers the shakers but it's also got to have the details people who can keep it all together um, you, you know put a restraining hand on the shoulder from time to time <laughs> and 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 also know when not to put a restraining hand on the shoulder so it's well, great that you found that out yeah you know and honestly like in particular with the finance person i very flatly said to her i brought you on to argue with me 
um, because I know that there's a balance between risk um, and profit, right? I mean, you can risk and, and you need to, to a certain degree, but you also have to be realistic about those risks. Um, and cautious or your business does not survive. So, I mean, and she's wonderful. I absolutely love this woman. She's very pragmatic. She's like, why? This is a question I get all the time. Why? <laughs> Just everything we do. Do we have to have someone that costs that much? Why? <laughs> you know, it's wonderful and it's challenging and it's the way it should be. I, I'm, I'm going to regret bringing this up. It sounds a little bit like the crew of the original uh, Starship Enterprise, because oh. for every Kirk, you need a Spock to be yeah. a rational person and maybe even uh, Dr. McCoy to add a little empathy. Damn it, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a doctor, not an engineer. Uh, absolutely. You do. You really do need a balanced team. And that was something that uh, I've been really excited about in this last year as we filled out our, our executive in particular. We've had such amazing luck in the last couple of years. As things started to turn, we've been able to pick up some amazing people on our team, specialists in battery technology that are really quite hard to find. And lo and behold, didn't they turn out to be awesome people? Uh, and that's that's not always the case. <laughs> so you know we're pretty lucky, and it's been it's been quite the ride. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, let's get back to talking about that ride because we didn't really introduce Growing Green uh, fully or talk about your entrepreneurial journey. So tell me a little bit about your quest to end energy poverty and how that turned into portable battery technology and Growing Green innovations. Yeah, well, you know, obviously, if you're going to end world poverty and uh, energy poverty, you should make batteries. How, you don't see the connection? Um, so <laughs> one of the things that uh, it kind of actually started, um, my twin boys, I have three kids, and the twin boys are older, and they were about three months old uh, when I walked by a, a house being built, and they had a diesel generator running, and I thought, if you wake these babies, I swear to God. <laughs> You know, I plowed through and and they didn't wake up, thankfully. And I was thinking about this. Why do we use these things? They're horrible. They're loud. They're expensive. They're terrible in the environment. Nobody enjoys working around a diesel generator. Mm. Uh, and that was part of what kind of got me thinking. Well, is there alternative opportunities for portable power? And that was really where it began. But when it really took shape and where it really kind of took off, and I guess I uh, opted with the burn the ships uh, and really dive into it was when I realized what the global energy poverty looked like. I mean, in Canada, we are so fortunate. We are one of the most, we have one of the most stable grids on the planet. Uh, and I know sometimes you groan because we get outages, but when you compare it to other parts of the world, it, it's just night and day. A lot of people don't realize, I'm going to hit you with three um, crazy numbers. One, there's more than a billion people in the world who have zero access to energy. That means they're using candlelight um, only, right? Nothing, not even light. Two, there are 2.6 billion people in the world who do not have enough energy to cook in any way other than burning something. So often that's a biomass. Uh, it can even be garbage and feces. And to say that it's horrible on health and the environment is an understatement. That's 2.6 billion people. And then when you get to what's called domestic energy poverty, you're talking about half the world's population. And domestic energy poverty is you have such rampant outages or you only have uh, power for certain hours of the day or um, it's completely unreliable that that it's considered um, domestic energy poverty. 
And that's half the world. I mean, we're talking about basically 4 billion people. And that's something that a lot of Canadians, I think, just really have a hard time wrapping their head around. Tell us about the Grenjin. How does it, it, it's basically a solar battery, I guess, but you've come up with it as a, uh, as a consumer product. Uh, tell me about that, uh, uh, about that journey. Sure. You know, it was, um, it actually started for me, I started from the opposite end uh, of the design process. I started with the end consumer and I picked the hardest consumers to fulfill. So I said, if I'm um, a woman, a, a woman with a child and no spouse, and I live in rural area in sub-Saharan Africa, how on earth do I get that person power? And what does their life look like? Because I knew if I can solve that problem, I can probably solve a lot of the other problems. And one of the things I did is I, I kind of went through, well, what do they need truly, right? So forget about grid, forget about transmission lines, all of that stuff for a moment, just what does that person need? And basically there were three key things. One, they needed whatever it was, and this is probably the most important part, to be plug and play, truly plug and play. Lots of people like to say, oh, our systems are man uh, modular or um, they're plug and play, as long as you have an electrician or an engineer. <laughs> so that's not actually how that works when we say plug and play. Um, so we knew it had to be plug and play because this person isn't living next door to an electrician or an engineer. So even if they have equipment, this is crucial. Second, it had to be portable. Lots of people in the world are walking to work or find water or food or shelter on an ongoing pace, basis. So it had to be portable and lightweight. Uh, and finally, it had to be scalable. So one of the things, uh, and it is very similar to what happens with computers, but we have what's called a watt addiction. So we constantly have our energy demands going up, particularly electric uh, these days, because as we're bringing on more electric devices um, because of climate change. So it's an important thing that we do, um, but it does have rep uh, repercussions um, in the greater kind of scheme. So when I when I thought about that kind of bigger picture, I said, I have to solve these three, uh, three issues. There were certain things I noticed. First off, it had nothing. Uh, let me to let me let me stop you there for a sec. Sure. So, so you decided to create a product for essentially the developing world where people have no money and need, um, as you say, total plug and play. It it sounds like you made this as hard as possible for yourself. <laughs> for sure. I mean, like that's pretty much how I grew up. I, well, so why would you do that? Why why wouldn't you say let's go after campers and and cottagers and people with their shacks up in the north? Um, you know, honestly, I, and this kind of, again, comes back to, you know, being Pride Month and all of that kind of stuff. But, you know, I didn't have it easy. I had it hard. Maybe it wasn't because of energy, but I had it hard for other reasons. Um, and I didn't, it wasn't my goal in life to make it easier for people who already have it easy. Um, I'd like to make it an environmental impact and have those campers and construction companies and stuff like that using um, a cleaner product. But my goal in life is to help people achieve more equality. And we're so far from it in so many parts of the world. So, you know, making it easier for the folks going camping, great. Not as high a priority for me. Wow. So tell me, long story short, um, how did you develop the pro product? How long has it been? And, and who's buying it? Um, so it's been a long, long process. <laughs> so one of the things that, um, you know, a lot of people, um, I guess from the consumer perspective, and it's important that it's this way, they just see that they can click things together like Lego. Oh, 
cool. Well, that doesn't seem hard. And that's good. It shouldn't seem hard from their perspective. But from our perspective in developing it, there was a ton of technical things that had to be um, considered and built into the system. So one of those things is around the idea of like, we don't know what the imports, uh, input source is going to be. Is it going to be a hand crank or a hydro dam or the grid? So it could be tiny, tiny trickle of energy, or it could be an overabundance. There might be one battery in the stack, or there could be a thousand. And you didn't know what the output was going to be. So are they running one cell phone or an entire city? So that led us to a lot of lot of work <laughs> uh, in trying to figure out how do we create the electronics so that they're safe and we can allow this plug and play because effectively we're taking the engineer and, and electrician out of the equation, or as I like to put it, uh, we're putting them in the box where all engineers should be. Right, right. <laughs> when did you start on this journey? When did you have a product on the market? Um, well, we have our first kind of modified product, which is much more of a, a more common, it's not super common, but a more common solar generator, our little ultralight. And that was the first one we released. And um, we had our first kind of production run in 2018. And a lot of it did go to people with um, interest in hunting and camping, um, needed it for CPAP machines. Uh, things like that. That was definitely a good fit for that one, but it's quite small. So, and small by Canadian standards. So we are kind of big on power around here. And, you know, we, uh, we think that something that runs your cell phone and a laptop. And the chainsaw. Or, yeah. <laughs> you, we, we kind of have some expectations that might be a little bit higher than other parts of the world. Uh, so for around here, it's definitely considered small and it has been mostly Canada and the U S that have bought those smaller units. Uh, and now we have other ones that are going to be released basically in the next 12 months, it looks like. So we actually were lucky about, oh gosh, uh, mid-2018, we submitted our technology into a contest by the U.S. Department of Defense, uh, and we won an innovation award. And that actually was probably one of the biggest turning points for us. Even though it wasn't a cash award, we didn't have a contract with them, but they have a reputation. And when people think about the U.S. military or the U.S. Department of Defense, I'm sure they have many thoughts, but one of them is certainly that, yeah, they know tech and they buy really expensive tech. They buy the best of the best typically. So for a lot of people, they kind of went, well, well maybe there's something here after all. Uh, and so they start to look at us a little bit differently. And one of the things that later came was we were able to get our first Canadian Department of Defense contract. And the Canadian Department of Defense right now is going through um, a big process of trying to um, clean up their environmental act. So reduce the footprint of their camps and their bases and stuff like that. So that's part of what we're participating in right now. So now these units that are coming out are much more of that patented technology. Right. Are you serving, you know, that sub-Saharan customer that, that you had in mind at first? Not yet. Or <laughs> we hope to. We do have a contract pending um, that is to help the rural electrification of Northeast India. Um, and it's 40,000 homes. So it's extremely exciting. But of course, um, COVID right now is really, it's just been doing such a number on India in the past while. Uh, so things in that area have been temporarily put on hold. We're hoping that it is in fact temporary uh, and that they will be continuing. But obviously they have some urgent issues to deal with. Right. So sum it up for me a little bit. Uh, how, how many units have you sold? Where does one buy them? And what's next? <laughs> okay. So 
how many units have we sold? You know, I actually have to check with one of my staff. So let's Are we talking say, hundreds or thousands or billions? Or? It would be in the hundreds so far, soon to hopefully be in the thousands. Uh, in fact, we have some new contracts coming up that should definitely put it into the thousands. Um, in terms of, what was the second question? <laughs> <laughs> Oh, short-term memory. <laughs> where do I, where, where, where do we buy them? Are they in the Canadian oh. Tire catalog yet? Yeah, no. The small ones right now are just mostly available online. There are a few retailers across Canada that are carrying them. Um, but this unit is um, kind of not our flagship, so we haven't pushed it quite as hard. So usually on our website is the easiest spot. Right. And just to be clear, they're like $400 or something, right? For uh... yeah. It it depends on, you know, do you want a combination where it gets like with the folding solar panel and things like that. And um, but yeah, they're they're a great little like especially if you're camping and you're a tent camper or um, tent trailer, you know, little little tow along units um, that are small. They're, they're a great little companion for that because, you know, you, you might not always have power, but let's face it, we don't often go without our phones. Uh, so we have, you know, for those digital type of things are a great fit. And but this is about the price of a like a gasoline or diesel, uh, you know, a small consumer generator. Yeah, it is. And in fact, uh, in the long run, we anticipate, you know, the market research would suggest is probably our bigger units will be slightly more expensive to buy than a diesel generator, but much cheaper to operate. So even without having solar, just simply charging the battery from the grid and taking it with you would still be a fraction of the cost of running a diesel generator. Uh, and surprisingly, um, it's actually better on the environment. Our grid, thankfully, is making some some improvements. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I went out and bought a generator once after we had two power failures in a row that lasted multiple days. And I thought, you know what? We, we, we can't keep living like this. And I thought, of course, what will I do after the, you know, the gas runs out? Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, delighted that there's, a, that, that, that there's this consumer-friendly um, renewable source. Um, that's exciting. So, so that's available from, uh, growing, from, from the Growing Green website. Yeah, so just grengen.com or growinggreener.ca. Um, we actually are really excited. We're hopefully, you know, and I'm not going to give a specific date, but let's say within 15 months, we'll, we're hopefully going to be releasing our first residential product. Uh, so this one will do, um, I guess, uh, the, probably some of the best features are, of course, it's I'm back up. So when the power goes out, you don't run out of power. Um, the power is going to keep going. It's a natural uninterrupted power supply. So you'd, the um, app would give you a little alert to let you know it's gone out so that you might choose to not do the dishwasher and run the laundry at the same time. Uh, but you could. Uh, so that'd be part of it. The other part is around um, time of use management. So there's actually quite a lot of savings that comes uh, from planning when you use electricity. So the way that this works, and um, for a lot of people in Ontario, for example, they would have time of use. Instead of worrying about trying to plan when you use your electricity, the, the battery takes the system takes care of it for you. So effectively what it does is it loads itself up when the electricity is cheap and using the most renewables. And then you use from the battery when it would be expensive and when they're using the most peaker plants, which are really bad on the environment. Uh, and the difference in emissions is huge it's absolutely huge so even in such a simple way even without adding a single solar panel you actually can have a pretty impressive impact 
on lowering, lowering your carbon footprint by avoiding that peaker plant time. Very cool. So tell us how the Grenjin actually works. Do you just like put it in the sunshine and let it rip? So a tiny bit more, but not by much. So you, uh, if you're outside and you want to use it for camping, you just plug in the solar panel. It's literally a single plug and turn it on. <laughs> that, ooh, plug stuff in. So when we say plug and play, we usually, we mean, you know, full on plug and play. And then the solar panel, I take it it's not one that goes on the roof. This is a portable one you no. carry with you. Yeah. Sometimes they're called solar blankets. They just fold up. It's about the size of a, a laptop, but a bit thicker. So you just fold it out and the cable runs from the solar panel to the, the Grenchen and that's it. This sounds so bloody simple. Why has no one done this before? <laughs> you know what? I think um, in the solar generator category, there are some companies that have started in the last few years and it's becoming more popular. But in the bigger sense, in the patented part of our technology, it really comes down to, I think, two factors. One, I think that people get caught inside the box. Um, we have grid. We must extend grid. That's how we get power. <laughs> so you get that really kind of specific sort of mindset that sometimes um, doesn't let you see new innovation. The other part is, you know, for a lot of businesses, they don't need to expand or change what they're doing because they're already at full capacity for their demand. I mean, the demand on batteries right now is ridiculous. It's it's absolutely ridiculous and it's going through the roof. In fact, um, um, power the Tesla Powerwall 2 has pulled out of Canada temporarily because they, they can't meet the demand. You can only get it in the U.S. and only if you buy it with solar panels. The flip side of that, though, is that we are getting better batteries and heavier and, and, and ones that can help us drive more than 200 kilometers without the car stopping in the middle of the desert. Um, how does that affect you, the fact that battery technology is still so uh, vibrant and, 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 and increasingly productive? So actually, there's uh, it's been great for us. Um, there's kind of two parts. A lot of people think of batteries as kind of one one large piece, but there's really kind of two parts to it. One is cell development, um, which is, are you building a lithium iron phosphate battery or are you building a cell or are you building a lithium ion with cobalt? Um, so cell production. Batteries are much more focused on the electronics and the flow of the electricity between the cells. So we are on the battery side uh, versus the cell side. So as all the um, chemistry work that's being done, all of those advancements, they're great. Somebody else does the work and we get to buy those cells and turn them into cool battery systems. Uh, so it's been great for us in that regard. Okay, so what are your hopes regarding this product? Are you trying to come up with new and different devices that will work in sort of more distant, more remote locations? Is, is that is that the focus or well, definitely do you my really want to own the camping market? <laughs> my hopes definitely include not uh, being so broke as uh, an entrepreneur often is. We're starting to turn that corner. So definitely one of my hopes. Um, actually, the, the camping market is definitely there, but it's not probably our primary market. I think... Uh, uh, we really will be focusing a little bit more on the residential and then those foreign markets where uh, we have remote communities and, and so forth, energy poverty. 
Right. And the residential markets, so that that's not the emergency generator that, that I bought and stored at the back of the garage. This is something that we'd use every day to, to help reduce our dependence on the grid? Yeah, and it will replace that diesel backup generator as well for a certain period of time. Obviously, if the grid is out, if you're charging it only from the grid and the grid is out for an extended period of time, eventually you run out. But for most people, outages only last you know, I think the average is somewhere between one and two hours or less. Um, so you'd have no problem with those kind of outages. If it's for a week, you're going to need something else. You're going to need something supplementary. I'm kind of thinking like we build a cable to attach it to an exercise bike. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, it sounds amazing. So you've created a, a, a company that's, that is going to help with sustainability to, to help sustainable development around the world. Um, how important is sustainability to you and do you demonstrate it in the business? Yeah, um, I'd say it's incredibly important to us. I'd say the only difference, the only thing more important in terms of business is I am a human humanitarian than environmentalist. And by that, I mean, my my primary goals in involve helping those those folks in those remote areas that are most impoverished. The second, and not by far, uh, would be the environmental impact. And we do take it quite serious in our office. We're really pretty much uh, paperless. Um, everything is digital. We try and be really good about, you know, organics and recycling and all of the things that we can do to lower our footprint as a just general day stuff, but also looking at how do we deal with it in our supply chain so that we can lower our overall carbon footprint. Right. Is, is the company, though, are, are you trying to build it as a model of sustainability? Yeah. So one of the things, and this is kind of a really unique thing to what we do. I've never seen another battery company that does this. But what happens right now in the world with batteries is, uh, so a battery might have 68 cells. Uh, if one cell fails, the whole battery is thrown out. But with ours, we don't actually weld all the battery cells together. We They're individually connected to electronics so that we know exactly what cell fails when and where and from thousands of miles away because it's Internet of Things connected. So if there is a battery that requires servicing, we replace a single cell, not an entire battery. That's very cool. Now, do I need that that engineer next door to do that? Or how does how does that actually No, happen? the plan at this point. <laughs> the plan at this point will be uh, that it would be serviced by us. So you would just pop in a, a spare because that's how plug and play it is. You just snap wow. it in, uh, send us your original battery and we would service it or we would um, upcycle it in different ways. So cells can be then used in um, uh, recycling purposes. So the end of life of a cell is technically at 80 percent. Uh, of its life, which means it actually has quite a bit of life left. Um, but we don't guarantee it past that, right? That's the industry standard. So there's a lot of uses for those batteries once they uh, hit the end of life um, in their you know, commercial aspect. It sounds to me like you've been encountering barriers and leaping right over them uh, throughout <laughs> most of your career and possibly your, 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 your life. You were, you were mentioned recently in an article on... Uh, how COVID is shifting federal aid programs to sm to small business, and you were sort of expressing some concern that hey, maybe they'll they'll get around to getting it right. Can you speak to the barriers that continue to exist for LGBTQ entrepreneurs across Canada beyond COVID? Yeah, so I think COVID has been something that's hit 
a lot of people, women in particular. Um, but in terms of kind of the broader picture, being an LGBT entrepreneur um, or even just a, a worker has some challenges. I mean, we kind of, we, we, we have this attitude that we've come so far and we have, um, but we still have a long ways to go. And a lot of it is actually around the unconscious bias uh, rather than conscious bias. And I'm, I'm old enough to uh, remember a day when uh, it was before uh, gay marriage was legalized. It was even before um, it was decriminalized uh, in parts of the world. And there's still plenty of places where it's criminal, by the way. In fact, for a lot of people, I'll bet that they were alive in 1990 when the World Health Organization declassified homosexuality as a mental disorder. Wow. 1990 is not actually that long ago. <laughs> I did not. I did yeah. not know that. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and in Canada, we're very fortunate that the government and the general belief is that it should be accepted. Uh, in fact, when you look at the, um, there's all sorts of maps that show kind of acceptance levels and laws in different places. In Canada, the acceptance level is around 85%. So it's it's pretty solid. Um, it's not 100%, but it's definitely pretty solid. Other parts of the world is a very, very different story. Um, there's still 69 countries in the world that have laws against homosexuality, uh, nine countries that criminalize um, any form of gender expression. So um, if if you're a girl who likes to dress like a boy, um, they're not too happy about that or vice versa. And there's seven countries that still have the death sentence. And the death sentence in some cases, death by stoning. Oh my gosh. You know, like we, we forget because that's not that's not what we live with here. But in major parts of the world, I mean, and that's, it might seem like the extreme, but lots of them have whipping and lashes, um, stoning, imprisonment, um, admission to psychiatric hospitals, huge fines, um, life imprisonment in some cases. And the wording, the wording is really a language of hate. When you really look at the laws in some countries, it's unnatural offenses and serious or gross indecency um, against the order of nature. Uh, debauchery. Personally, I think we should keep debauchery because my weekends are really boring. <laughs> Let's keep that one up. Um, but, you know, a lot of the language is really around hate. Uh, and there's a lot of places where it's not safe for me to travel. Even if the, the laws are not specifically opposed to homosexuality, sometimes the attitudes are. Is there an overlap between the countries where you would not want to travel to and where your solution of portable power plug and play is needed <laughs> boy do there you is. yes there is actually um one of the areas in particular that i i traveled to a few years ago was indonesia uh and indonesia the acceptance rate is nine percent um and i i went to that country and i couldn't safely use public bathrooms i felt i felt unsafe like i, I thought i'd be attacked uh so i had to plan my days around when i could be at my hotel to use the bathroom and on the same trip, I had been just the week before in India, where I was speaking at the Kanda India Tech Summit, and I got chased out of the five-star hotel bathroom uh, by the staff because a short-haired woman um, clearly is in the wrong place. Uh, so there were a lot of things that have, you know, been really difficult. And one of the things, you know, thinking on a business level that was particularly tough was a couple of years later, I needed to return to Indonesia. I had a, a consultant that we'd hired. Uh, who didn't turn out as effective as we wanted. And I needed to collect some equipment from him. And I wanted to follow up with the contacts we'd made there and and make sure we didn't lose that momentum. And I was kind of starting to plan my trip. And one of the advisors I was working with at the time said, Connie, you can't go. And I said, what are you talking about, Bob? 
And he said, you know, if this guy really wants to mess with you, he can get you arrested. Not for your behavior, but for your mindset? Being gay. Yeah. For being gay. Yeah. So, like, I mean, and because some of those laws are so vague, like, um, you know, how you dress and uh, uh, types of behaviors, uh, it's really quite vague. So somebody really can throw you in jail for just about anything. And, you know, we forget, you know, there are so many different kinds of discrimination and things that happen in the world. And all of them, quite frankly, make me sick. Um, but we forget sometimes because Canada is so inclusive for the most part that that's just not the case in a lot of places. You know, I remember landing in India and, and standing in the immigration line and this woman turned around and she was probably five five people in front of me and she glared at me like if the floor could have swallowed me up and dropped me into hell. That's what, what she was aiming for. And you could see it on her face. Well, why? And to me, this really comes into a much bigger topic around uh, how we dress. I mean, after all, she didn't actually know I was gay. She's just making some assumptions based on the fact that I wear more gender neutral clothes or men's clothes sometimes. I have short hair. Um, I don't wear makeup. Um, so she treated me that way. And, and, and that's, you know, that's, and that's the contrast, scary part is that uh, anyone could be targeted on on, on that. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, whereas by contrast, my wife, who tends to dress much more like, you know, your typical Canadian woman, and she wears makeup, and she's much more feminine in her dress and appearance. But quite frankly, she's not less gay, I can assure you. She's just as gay as I am, but she gets treated quite a bit differently. Um, so a lot of it really does come down to how we look. Uh, and that really is a much broader problem, because that comes to you know, all sorts of things in in feminine, feminism, um, as well as on the opposite side, like men who are too effeminate in their dress. You know, that's not fair either. You know, so we, I think we have to look at the bigger picture on how we look at people. I mean, after all, I remember, this is completely aside from LGBT issues. I was driving through Edmonton, um, and we have a really eclectic group of people in Edmonton, and I love it. Um, and we happened to pass by someone who was dressed in very kind of 50s-style, like, dress. Um, a woman, like, and it was like kind of one of those poodle skirts, I guess, that kind of thing. I thought, wow, that looks so cool. And the person beside me in the car was like, oh, my God. And I went, why are you judging this person? Because she's different. Like, I thought she looked cool. But we, but the person beside me judged her, and not in a positive way. In Canada, we tend to think that we're, you know, more accepting. You said we're eighty-five percent of the way. Um, what needs to be done in Canada to to, to 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 help ensure, you know, equality and acceptance for everybody? Well, I think more people have to be advocates, particularly in business. I mean, government can go so far, but business has a responsibility to show leadership. And there have been some great examples. Um, CGLCC, the Canadian Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce, they have done a wonderful job with the um, bringing on kind of this supplier diversity program, which I think is brilliant um, and helps get people indoors that have previously been rather closed. You still have to have the best product and best price and all that, but you finally can get in the door. Uh, but part of it comes on the opposite end where those corporate uh, companies, big companies, 
are showing support, showing that their employees, that their suppliers, that every part of their life is inclusive, not just making sure that a bathroom in one building is. It's, it's got to be much more inclusive all the way through from every part of buying parts to finishing with their customer service. Um, and we've seen some great examples. I know uh, EY has been terrific. Uh, they have been unbelievably supportive to me. And, you know, we basically had no work with them, but they do it because it's the right thing to do. Uh, in fact, that's how I got my VP finance was, was, was a recommendation from an EY colleague. Do, do you think that there are specific things that businesses could be doing more of in order to be allies and to promote this diversity and equity that some of us believe is so important? <laughs> well, hopefully some I of us so. is a lot of us. Um, yeah. You know what? I think that um, there are a lot of specific things. One is being part of those supplier diversity programs. I think it's great. And again, it's not some kind of handout. They're not grants. It's just an opportunity to meet with buyers. Uh, and that's a great thing. It doesn't impact their business negatively. In anything, it impacts their business positively. And all of the other things, including, you know, support of different families at, at work and the rights. Like, paternal leave should not still be a question in some places, and yet it's not expected. Uh, you know, there's a lot of places where it just, even the forms, right? Your paper forms say, what's your husband's name? You scratch it out and put... <laughs> Um, right. partner or spouse, right? And, you know, they're simple things, but they're things that in the long run create an environment that is supportive. And is there, are, are there sources you could recommend for people to, for, for, for businesses, entrepreneurs or big businesses to consult in order to not just be more sympathetic, but also to adopt processes and practices that are going to encourage diversity and inclusion? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, and this is obviously not my business, but within the CGLCC um, supplier list, there's actually quite a few companies that consult on this type of stuff that can be hired to come in and help them develop programs, identify problems, things like that. And, I, you know, I'm personally, I'm a bit of a Brene Brown fan, and I thought she made this incredible, important comment in one of her talks. Um, and she was talking about consulting with uh, CEOs of big companies. And they said, you know, we're so afraid that we're going to do something wrong or they're not going to understand that we're trying to be supportive. And her comment and reply was perfect. She said, it's not about you. Help me with that. Full stop. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay, see, that meant something to me. <laughs> so um, it's, it's about the person that has been discriminated against. Yeah, the person who's at the top, the CEO, might feel uncomfortable. The people who've, who've appreciated the privilege of their positions in the past might feel some discomfort. And that's okay, because guess what? The people who've been discriminated against have felt that for a long time. Uh, and I think that, you know, she really sums it up well in saying it's not about you. It's about them. So, yeah, you might feel uncomfortable, but guess what? There are all sorts of things about our jobs that are uncomfortable and, and not always the most okay. pleasant. I, I, but I'm, we do I'm sorry, I'm missing I thought the discomfort was coming from not knowing how to behave and how to make people feel more welcome and included. But that's... Yeah, and that is that is part of it. But it's it's understanding that that is secondary, I guess. 
you know, that the the point is we're trying to make it better for the people that have been discriminated against rather than making it easy for the the company and the people who've been in the position of privilege. Connie, you've mentioned unconscious bias as a, 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 an issue in people's lives and, and something that may stand between us and uh, truly appreciating each other. So tell me what you mean by that and, and, and how that gets in the way. Well, it, I think first off, I mean, we're trying to be better, but the whole point is it's unconscious, right? And the impacts can be significant. I'll give you two two interesting examples that I, I experienced in the last couple of years. Um, one, I was at a, um, it was a networking basically event here in Edmonton, and I was talking with three gentlemen, two of them were Alberta government related um, supporters, and they were very supportive. Um, so don't get me wrong, they were very supportive gentlemen. Uh, and the other person was another entrepreneur. Now, of the, th- of the three gentlemen and myself, I was by far the most technical person, both with my IT experience and my degree and all of it, much more experience than the other three. But the conversation kind of went like this. They said, uh, hey, John Doe, um, you know, how's all that work going with RFID? And, you know, and they talked tech. And then they turned to me and said, now, Missy, have you signed up for? And if anybody else was watching that interaction, that comment just made me look like the most um, junior person in the conversation, without question. And and it came from somebody who I would consider a big supporter of us. But if you were in that room and happened to be nearby, you certainly would have had that impression that I was the, the little kid in the conversation where it was not the case. Another one that really, really stood out for me was um, when I was chatting with someone, and this was actually somebody in the government of Canada, and the person had been very unsupportive of our technology. And uh, I had had comments of, I don't see uh, innovation here, and I don't see much technology here. And then the person came back, this gentleman came back for a meeting about uh, eight months later, and it happened that I had um, my director of BD sitting with me, and it was a, a guy. And he leaned over, and this is business development. He leaned over, patted his leg, and said, well, now that you have someone technical on board. Whoa. I, this was the sales guy. <laughs> I'm just like, I built ERP systems in terms of massive software for huge companies. How am I not the technical person in the room? Um, but there it was, right? He assumed, without knowing much of anything else, that there was a guy in the room. This was the technical person. Right. And what's what's the the fallout from something like that? I mean, I I, I, I presume you're going to try and, and, and gloss over it, but it's something you don't <laughs> forget. Uh, that can affect business relationships, right? Well, you know what? And this actually had a positive outcome because one of the things that uh, was a result, I was actually on a trade mission with the CGLCC. We went down to the U.S. to um, uh, the National Gay and Lesbian Chamber of Commerce has a big uh, event every year, which is amazing conference. It's incredible. Uh, and while I was there, I was talking to another government of Canada um, person. It was quite high up. And um, we were kind of chatting over drinks. And I mentioned this had happened. And he was like, Connie, you have to report this. And I was like, ah, you know, what? is it really worth it? Is this going to make it worse? And he pushed me and supported me in every way. And you know, and at the type of level, let's say, not necessarily making a big stink, 
Um, but he supported me through it and made sure that kind of it got passed down the line that that was unacceptable behavior and it changed. Wow. It's, it's funny. Would you one would think that there's a Canadian unconscious bias not to report things, not to rock <laughs> the boat. But but it looks like, you know, sometimes it's something you got to do. Yeah, it is. And, and that partly comes back to my my belief that personally, I I insist on being out in pretty much every conversation uh, interview podcast kind of thing I do. This one, obviously not a tough one. You introduced me. Um, but one of the things that uh, I really insist on is whatever interview I'm doing, I always seem to put in or find a way to drop something about having a wife or being LGBT, um, something to indicate that um, I'm not cisgendered, that I'm not straight. And the reason I do that is because there are not many of us out here right now. And if it's going to ever be easier for the people coming behind us, we have to be advocates. We have to put ourselves out front. And, you know, I had a really hard time as a kid. I really did. I took a lot of terrible bullying. I was beat up lots. Uh, I had all of those things I went through. And I'd like to think that I can play a role in making it better for the people coming after me. And you know what? At this point, my th skin is pretty thick. I've heard it all. Um, you know, and I don't know, you might want to cut this out, but, um, you know, no, we're not cutting it out. We're not cutting it out. I, I, I'll tell you, like my first pronoun that people gave me was it. What is it? You know, or yelling across the street, Hey, you fat, ugly dyke. Uh, these are not things that you live through without scars. Uh, and people all over Canada, you know, especially my age, I'm 46. I'm not that old. <clears throat> Um, You're not old at all. <laughs> but, you know, that wasn't that long ago when I was in high school that, you know, I got, you know, when I was younger, it was it was physical violence. I didn't fit and I got beat up. And when I got a little bit older, it became verbal, much more so. Uh, and then when I got into my 20s, it started to be much more subtle because now we're adults and we, we can't get away with yelling those kind of comments across the street, although it did eventually turn into yelling those kind of comments on anonymous um, posts online. Uh, and, you know, I just learned to to realize that I, it didn't matter to me. I, I, I started to appreciate who I was. And this was something, a, a growth experience for me. But, you know, over the years, like, I felt horrible about myself. I mean, obviously, I was not okay. Um, but as I got into my 20s and later, I had some really supportive people around me who said, well, that's bullshit. You're just fine. It, you're not the problem. And eventually, I really started to believe it. And it took a long time. It took a shockingly long time. Right. Well, um, thank goodness for those people. And, yeah. And but what really happened in the end was, you know, somewhere in the last few years and being an entrepreneur in, in particular, I got what I would call real confidence. And real confidence to me isn't walking in a room and going, they're going to like me. It's walking in a room and going, I'll be okay if they don't. And that for me came from, you know what, I've heard it all. You, What are you going to say to me that I haven't already heard? I've heard it all. Bring it. So, you know, there's that old chestnut of a phrase that uh, that which does not kill me makes me stronger. So has that maybe helped, you know, equip you to be a better entrepreneur? Absolutely. A hundred percent. Because, you know, I think... We, you know, like a, there's a crazy stat, something like 90% of all businesses fail by year five um, with new tech startup. It might even be more. I don't know. 
But part of it, I think, comes with the fact that I just didn't assume it was going to be easy. And I assumed people were going to stand against me. Um, and I just didn't quit. Because if I had to quit, I would never have made it to 46. I'd have quit a long, long time ago. Um, but I didn't. I, I kept pressing through. And people gave me a hard time. And I said, fine, I'll find another door. And I kept going. So you said, I didn't assume it would be easy. I assumed that people would stand against me. Those are such powerful words, and they're, they're, they're so sad and yet so strong and hopeful at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that is trying kind of what I aim for, I guess. You know, I'm actually a pretty, um, I think people who know me well would say I'm a, I'm a pretty positive person. I'm a, definitely a glass half full uh, kind of gal, and uh, I look for the brighter things, and I try and um, let the other stuff roll off my shoulders. But, uh, you know, I think it's important. I mean, people need to know that it does get better because if not, you know, how do they have hope for, you know, down the road? I remember that trip to India while I was there, I saw this two young women in the back of the room watching me on one of the talks. And, and I looked, I got a kind of closer look a little later in the day. And I thought, these are two young women who are gay and they're looking at me and I could see this look in their eye. And I thought, they're looking at me with hope. They're thinking, maybe someday. And that that is the most empowering, wonderful feeling you have is that somebody thinks, you know what, maybe there's a chance. Wow. And that's a good reason to be to be out and to 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 to, to speak out and Absolutely. To let everyone know. It's also wow. way harder to get dates if you're in the closet. So, you know, I don't recommend that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, is, is there a business case for diversity and inclusion? In in your experience, can you see that diverse teams actually perform better, actually see things coming sooner than other teams? A hundred percent. I mean, they've done studies around this and they've shown, and I remember one of them was a physics one. They had a physics problem. They had a team of physicists and a team of diverse group, people from that were mathematicians and physicists, but also psychologists and different things like that. I think one of them was a weather person um, and it was actually the diverse team that came up with a better solution. Uh, and they've done these kind of studies most uh, many times. And I have experienced it in my own business because you don't know the perspective of somebody you've never met, um, as a perspective you've never lived. So when you have people, like we actually have, we kind of joke, we have a little bit of a mini UN here. Uh, we have a lot of different countries represented in our group. Um, and, you know, somebody will come and we have a couple of people from Brazil and they'll talk about some of the things that are unique to Brazil that absolutely are different from Canada, that are different from the US, that are different from Mexico. Um, and that is something that makes us better, that provides better quality products because we're making sure it fits in their environment. Because let me tell you, humidity might not be a big factor in Canada, but it sure is in places like Brazil or India. Right. And the the, the, the Brazilian Chamber of Commerce might not mention that <laughs> it might <laughs> when not, they need to. Yeah, that's right. It might, it might not be something that you know. I remember somebody giving me um, in India a tip about a, a particular... Oh, gosh, now I wrote it down. I can't remember now. But uh, a type of uh, material they line cases with sometimes to help with the humidity. Well, that's not something I would have ever known to look up. Right. Okay. If you could look back and give young Connie <laughs> some advice, what, what, what would that advice be? Ooh, I could think of a lot of things I would tell myself. Um, I, I think most of all, though, I think you'll get through it and there, you'll find your people. 
I mean, when I looked back, especially, you know, for me, those teenage years around 14 were the hardest um, by far. And, you know, I experienced at one point where basically um, all of my grade eight class, both classes in our junior high, decided that it would be funny to not talk to me for two months. And nobody spoke to me, not a single word. Um, And I was so isolated and so alone. And if I could look back and tell that kid something, I'd say, keep your chin up, you'll get through and you're going to find your people. Uh, And I did. And the people that have come into my life are amazing. And they have stood by me through everything. And they're the people that count for me. Those are the ones that count. So I would have told that kid, stick with it. You're going to get there. You're going to find your people. You won't always be alone. Fantastic. Finally, Connie, we like to end each podcast with saying, what's the most actionable piece of advice that you'd like to offer our entrepreneurial listeners? Something that they can take away and implement in their business immediately. You got one more for me? Yeah, I think it kind of it comes ties back to some of the other stuff, but it's really about being persistent and finding a way. You know, we often come to a roadblock and we think, well, that's it. There's no other way. But it's about creativity. You know, I couldn't get to the support I needed from some of those, you know, early groups that were supposed to be supportive of a startup. I, I got I ran into unconscious bias. I said, well, OK, well, now I have to find another way. And I did. I went to different webinars. I went to different events and conferences. And little by little, I picked up different ways in. I found new doors. I found new windows. And I just kept looking finding a creative way to get to where I needed to be. If the straight line wasn't obvious, I found a new path. Wow. And I think that's an inspiring bit for everyone. Um, as, as, parent, as a parent, I'm always in a discussion about how easy do we make it for our kids? <laughs> how, much, how much should we let them fall? How much you know, should we let them fail? At one point, do we intervene and and put a pillow under them or make a phone call to open the door for them? And 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 what I'm hearing from you is that every 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 bit of experience, every hard landing, helps you for the next one. Yeah, and you know what? You never, as a parent, want to watch them fall. You never do. But the difference today, like my kids are pretty young. Uh, my twin boys are in grade two, and my daughter is just turning four. Um, let me tell you, that's, that's a whole lot of, a whole lot of something <laughs> during COVID. Um, but, uh, you know, I look at, I remember talking to their grade two teacher and, and their experiences are so different from mine when they talked about, you know, I remember they, they said, Oh, my, my friend, Jason, or whatever the name was, um, you know, he's this, 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 well, which one is Jason? Oh, oh he, he wears this, or he likes, uh, the Edmonton Oilers or whatever. And then the last thing that I discovered was not something they said. It was a person of color. They never mentioned it. I mean, when wow. I grew up, that would have probably been the first descriptor somebody would have said. Oh, it, it's uh, the, the black boy in our class. Or it's the indigenous person in our class. And they probably wouldn't have used um, words that polite, quite frankly. But it was they didn't even occur to them to say it. The, ch- the landscape has changed so much. And that's the kind of thing that gives me an unbelievable amount of hope. Absolutely, the the, the 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 children are going to do so much better than, than than we did. I have I have complete faith in that. <laughs> even even my kids, uh, <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna do it better. 
Um, but hey, you've done it really well, Connie. You have so much to be proud of, and I look forward to following your journey uh, a, 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 a lot closer. Growing greener innovations, uh, you know, your stories about being an innovator in technology and solving real problems and making a difference globally. Very exciting. And I wish you all the best on that journey. And we will talk again. I sure hope so. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure for me too. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence. <laughs>